Good morning, everybody. Um, like ever said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. So glad to be here with you this morning. Also, a special welcome to those of you who might be visiting with us for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. It's good to have you with us. And as always, we are grateful for those of you who are watching us either live or later on demand through our uh, streaming or watching us on Facebook. It's so glad to have you with us here uh, virtually. Well, like ever mentioned, I have the privilege this morning of continuing a teaching series that we, called, that we started a couple weeks ago, a series that we're simply calling Jesus, the gift that keeps giving. And so if you have been tracking with us, you know that we're entering week four of the Advent season. And Advent is a season observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of expecting, waiting, and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. And if, you are, if you've been here a number of years, you know that we pause uh, each year and we travel through the Advent season together, focusing on the birth of Jesus because it's super important. And during this Advent season, as we said week after week, we assume at least three postures, three postures, a posture of gratitude for God sending Jesus the first time, a uh, posture of preparation as we ready ourselves for his second com coming, and more importantly, a posture of celebration because we know his presence is among us today. The word, as the scripture says, became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says. He came to dwell among us, which means that he's close to us, he's near to us, he is Emmanuel, God with us and we've been framing Jesus as the best gift ever because the best gifts are practical, durable, meaningful. They solve problems and are easy to benefit from and they make the recipients better off in the long run. And so the goal of this series has been and continues to be to highlight some of the ways that Jesus is that gift that keeps giving and to prime our hearts, not just for this holiday season, but for when we exit this season so that we can have the proper perspective and focus. We begin this series by talking about Jesus as the bringer of salvation, right? He, be, he meets our biggest need, which is dealing with our sin problem, that we're broken, that we're fractured, that we're fallen. There's a huge gap between us and God because of our sinfulness, and the cross through Christ bridges that gap. We continued last week by highlighting Jesus as a healer, who moves toward our needs as we move toward him. He moves toward our desperate situations and circumstances, and he responds to us with compassion and supernatural healing. And this morning, I want to continue this series by focusing on Jesus, the counselor. Jesus, the counselor. Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and he shall be called, among, among other things, wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor. And as a kid and as a teenager and as I've engaged with the scriptures, I've always wondered, what is a wonderful counselor? One's probably just a really good counselor, a counselor that's really awesome, but certainly since we're talking about Jesus, it's more than that. It means at least that this all-knowing, all-powerful God who is unspeakably wise, and incorruptibly good is uniquely qualified to lead us in the right direction in life. I'll say that again. A wonderful counselor means that this all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God who is unspeakably wise, incorruptibly good, 
is uniquely qualified to lead us in the right direction. This aspect of who Messiah would be is to help us get unstuck in life. That's really when you bring in a counselor, right? You don't have a counselor just sitting on your couch, like when you come out of bed, they're there, right? You call a counselor when you're having an issue. There's a particular aspect of your life or the particular aspect of your finances or a particular aspect of your relationships or some meaningful area of life where you say, I'm stuck, I just can't get it going in this area. This particular issue or this particular circumstance or this particular person, this seems insurmountable. I need to bring in an expert to help me get unstuck. And Jesus, the wonderful counselor who is with us, is uniquely positioned and uniquely qualified to lead us in the right direction to help us get unstuck in life for his glory and for our good. And this is one of the striking amenities of our faith in Jesus, that this counselor, this gift that keeps on giving, this Emmanuel, this God that is proximate and close, is with us, and he is our wonderful Counselor, if you need a title for this message this morning, I'm simply calling it, you probably guessed it, Wonderful Counselor. <laughs> Meet me in Luke chapter 10 this morning as we go to God's Word to help frame this for us this morning. Luke chapter 10. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to engage with those paper Bibles if you're old school and you like to have something in your hand. Also, you can engage with us uh, today through your mobile devices or your tablets or whatever. We'll also be projecting the words to the scripture on the screens. Luke chapter 10, we'll start at verse 38. While you find that this morning, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We glorify you. We magnify your name. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come. We thank you for our students who led us so beautifully in worship this morning. We thank you, Lord, that even though this whole concept of worship means that we fill our hands to bring you a gift that hopefully we find, you find pleasing, that you don't let us leave empty-handed. That as we empty our hands and empty our pockets in faithful worship to you, you fill our pockets again and you fill our hands yet again with your goodness and light. You fill us with your truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, comfort us today that you would counsel us today, that you would speak truth to us today, and may our hearts be soft landing spaces for your word, your truth. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. Luke chapter 10, I'm starting at verse 38. It reads this way. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by a big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. This is a short text, uh, but it's powerful. It's concise. It's compact. 
but it packs a punch, and it's just what most, if not all of us, need as we enter the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, right? As we get busy with all types of activities and programs and pageants and shopping all surrounding the Savior's birth, we can get wrapped up in all of those things and forget the Savior himself. All gussied up and dressed up, going to shows, taking pictures of kids, going to programs, neglecting the reason for the season. I think this is a very fitting passage for the hour. One that if you have eyes to see it, positions Jesus as counselor. Luke sets the scene for us in a village called Bethany when Jesus comes to town and he decides to hang with his friends, Mary, Martha, and you might be familiar with their brother Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus considered them dear, dear friends. And so if Jesus is in town, he can't go by Bethany and not stop at their house. It would be rude, right? So these Jesus, these are Jesus' friends, so he stops by. And he's their friend, he's their companion, he loves them very much, they love him. But they also know that this is a special guy. This is just one of their good time buddies. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is their rabbi, their teacher. This is Messiah. He's a big deal. And when a big deal comes to your home, when somebody who's important comes to your house, when your spiritual boss comes to your house, they both try to be on what they might consider uh, their best behavior. Both were pretty sure that they had landed on the right behavior for Jesus, for the Messiah. They had both come to the conclusion that they had come to a good posture toward Jesus, both making value-driven decisions that govern their actions, both seeking Jesus' approval. One takes one posture, the other takes another. One busies themselves with a certain group of activities, and the other another, but who's right? And who's wrong? Well, that's up to the person that you're trying to please, right? Somebody's doing it right, and somebody isn't. Mary or Martha, somebody gets the point, and somebody is missing it. Somebody understands the assignment, and someone doesn't. You get my drift? We'll see in this short passage, Jesus the counselor, Jesus the instructor, and there are at least four things that I want to tease out as we walk through this text today. The first thing we see in this text is that when Jesus came to visit, Mary sat at the Lord's feet. Mary sat at the Lord's feet. When she considered what it might be for her to be on her best behavior, she instinctively sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to him. To put it a different way, Mary shows her faithfulness and interest in Jesus by her attentiveness. Her attentiveness. Biblically speaking, there's a word that's often thrown around in Scripture. It's the word abide or to abide, to wait, to remain, to dwell. And this isn't a passive word. This is actively being attentive, actively waiting, actively remaining, actively dwelling, actively listening. Now, one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called Something You Should Know. 
And I listen to this podcast. One of the reasons I listen to this podcast is because I try to get smarter about at least one thing every day. I try to get smarter about one thing every day. I want to hear a story that unlocks an understanding for me, or I want to grab an illustration or something that I can use as the person who regularly preaches. So I have this this gallery of podcasts that I listen to, and one of them is something you should know. And on this one particular podcast, this person was talking about how the best humans interact with other people. What I mean by that, the people who are most likable, the people who have the best relationships, the people who love, people love to see them coming. She said one of the defining characteristics of people that, that people love to see coming are that they're great listeners. They are fantastic listeners. And the person who was talking on this podcast said everybody should strive to not just be good listeners, but they should strive to be what he called loud listeners. Now, some of you all are just loud. (laughs) He wasn't suggesting that we be loud. He was suggesting that we be loud listeners. And I try to be a loud listener. And a loud listener is engaged the whole time. And while you're talking, they go, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, yeah, they might even be repeating things back to you just to make sure they got it and to signal to you that they're tracking with you. Yeah, okay, so she brought the potato salad. Oh, no, 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 she brought the green. Okay, and so we're talking back. The whole, I'm listening. I'm trying not to be rude or interrupt you, but I'm actively listening, and I'm listening loud. He said that we should be so intently listening when we're engaging other people that we're actually burning calories. He said a good listener is so engaged and so active that they are burning calories. And this is a good picture of what this active abiding looks like. If I were to imagine Mary at the feet of Jesus, she's not reclining, scrolling on her phone, catching every sixth word that Jesus is saying. She is actively listening. And if she felt comfortable, she might be listening loud. Mm-hmm, Jesus, yeah, you're teaching right now, okay? She's actively listening. She is abiding. And it takes discipline to sit and to abide. It takes hope in the object of your attention. Trust, a measure of faith. It takes understanding that this person has something that we need to hear We don't stay put in places where we don't feel safe. We don't abide where we don't feel comfortable. This is an active reality. And Mary's posture is worth paying attention to because it is that active, willful abiding, staying connected to Jesus that's going to make all the difference in the world. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 4. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. He continues, verse 5, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, those who remain in me, and I in them will produce what? Much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so picture the scene, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, actively listening with other competing options, She chooses instead to sit at Jesus' feet, unbothered by what's going on around her, including the glares of her sister, Martha. 
I have trouble sitting still. Do you? I have trouble abiding. I'm a professional Christian and I have trouble sitting still at the feet of Jesus, but not Mary. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Second thing we see in this text brings us to our second character in this text, and that is our dear sister Martha. If Mary shows her attentiveness to Jesus, her interest in him by sitting at his feet, Martha shows her faithfulness and interest in Jesus by service and activity. I'll say that again. Martha shows her faithfulness to Jesus and interest in him by service and activity. And let me just say, while we talk about our dear sister Martha, that Martha is not set up to be the villain of this story. So in your mind's eye, just erase the horns from her head because service and activity are vital aspects of faithful Christian service. I just want to say that out loud. Martha's not the villain here, but she needs a little help. She's not the villain because somebody's got to cook the food. Somebody's got to tend to the guests. Somebody's got to clean the house. And it's also true that Jesus probably didn't text them a few hours ahead and says, hey, our ETA is about two hours giving a person with Martha's personality some, 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 some opportunity, right, to get the stuff ready, to get the house ready, get the food ready. It's likely the case that in the first century, people just, they popped in. They just came by. We saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, and so he, he might be prone to the pop-in. Uh, but Ma Martha's not the villain here. Oh, but we should pay attention to those pop-in visits by Jesus because they can catch you off guard and force you to immediately and urgently toward the tasks that you feel are most important. I'll say that again. Pay attention to the pop-ins by Jesus because it can alert you to what you naturally start doing. It can alert you to what you naturally tend to first, and it could dis display in a way that you can't see when you have lots of time to prepare. It can help you see and therefore attend to the priorities of your heart and soul. Jesus pops in. And when somebody pops in on you, see him in the driveway, you don't go upstairs and start straightening the master bedroom, do you? You need to get that living room clean and that guest bathroom. All the stuff can go in every other room. You just need the living room and that bathroom right off the living room. Am I right? In the same way, when Jesus pops in on us, we tend to what we think is most, most important. And all of a sudden, Jesus pops in. Mary's instincts cause her to go sit cross-legged at the feet of Jesus. But Martha... Martha's instinct sends her running to the kitchen, running to the broom closet to get the duster, running to take that fish out of the, out of the refrigerator real quick. Her instincts, their instincts, send them in different directions. And she ends up doing rather than 
abiding. With the best of intentions, with the clearest of conscience, Mary is unbothered and at peace, while Martha is totally bothered, and dare I say it, she might be even anxious. Verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to get off of her butt and come and help me out. Now, as a recovering control freak, (laughs) with a couple of hours sober, As a person who's prone to doing rather than abiding, uh, I feel attacked by this text. I feel confronted by this. You know, it's not hard for me to see myself in this text, and I'm not talking about our dear sister Mary, I'm talking about sister girl Martha, right? As an Enneagram one with a strong sense of duty, and a fear of being experienced as unprepared or underprepared, I resonate with this. I generally know what I think I know what I'm talking about because I looked into the matter and I have usually a clear sense of what should be done, when it should be done, who should do it, and how to do it. If you're curious, just come ask me, I'll tell you. As one author said, Enneagram one, see the world this way. There's two ways to do something, their way or the wrong way. You can do it their way or you can do it the wrong way. And I can connect with our dear sister Martha. I was told by my dear friend that when he experienced me as anxious or bothered, my instinct is to overperform. And to overfunction. And if there's somebody in the way or somebody messing up, I have a tendency to say, sometimes politely, sometimes not, fine, you know what? I'll do it myself the right way. Now, this is fine, I guess, if you're living in a cage by yourself, but imagine if you're married to somebody. Amen. Or if you have children, it's it more complicated. Or if you, I don't know, lead a church. <laughs> Might even get more complicated. But I wrestle with this, and it seems true and rings true, and it confronts me because I recognize the confidence that Martha had in her rightness. Now, if we read the whole story here, uh, it didn't take but four or five verses. We read the whole story, we know she's not right. But we also take note of how certain she was that she was right. And she brings the matter to Jesus, sure that Jesus will straighten her sister out. And in coming to Jesus, she gets more than what she bargains for. She says to the Lord confidently, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you? I like how she put it. That my sister just sits here while I do all the work. Tell her to come and help me. Now notice, notice how she words this question. Notice how she frames it. She didn't say, Jesus, help us out here. Which one of us is wrong? Which one of us isn't seeing this right? There's no humble curiosity. She hadn't considered that maybe she's the problem. 
She hadn't considered the possibility and what we know is the fact that she's doing too much. She brings the matter to Jesus with certainty and she's doing too much. Why? Because she was distracted. And when you're distracted, you can't see things clearly. You can't see yourself clearly. You can't see other people clearly. You can't see the circumstance clearly. She's focused on one thing while missing the other. She was distracted. And because she was distracted, she saw just a tiny bit of the picture, formed a certain conclusion, and tried to bring Jesus into the matter to be on her side. Now, some of us have done this, right? I remember early in our uh, church planting experience, which tends to weigh heavily on a marriage, even a good one. My wife and I were at each other's necks, and we just, you know, we need some help. My wife said, we need to talk to somebody. I said, woman, you got me. We, we, we're talking right now. Just do what I tell you. You should be all right. She said, no, we need to talk to Steve and Cindy. Steve and Cindy, the former uh, founding pastors of the Evanston Vineyard, wise people, wonderful people. I said, yeah, Steve and Cindy. You, you, basically, you need to hear what I'm saying. You need to hear them say it. So let's get Steve and Cindy on the phone so that they can straighten you out, first lady. You, we sit down with Steve and Cindy, and do you know, they didn't say one word to her. All of their correction <laughs> was aimed at me. And I felt like, we need a second opinion. We need a second. <laughs> Steve's not wise anymore. What happened? <laughs> she was certain she had seen it correctly, but she couldn't see the full picture because she was distracted. And she essentially asked the Lord two questions. Lord, which one of us is wrong and why is it Mary? She didn't ask the right question. She didn't ask the right question, but she did ask the right person. She didn't ask the right question, but she did ask the right person. This is why we say, come to Jesus, weak, weary, and tired. Come to Jesus if you're a fool, if you're acting a fool, if you're wait, whatever. Don't wait to get fixed up before you come to Jesus. You'll never come to him. Just come to him. He can sort through it. He can figure it out. He can meet you in your foolishness, in your rebellion, in your intoxication, in your pursuit of everything other than him. Still come to him because you might not ask the question the right way. You might not have the right posture. You may not know what you need to know to get yourself unstuck, but the best thing that you can do is bring it to him anyway. A wonderful counselor. She brings the matter to Jesus, and Jesus brings his counsel. Jesus brings his counsel. I tell you, we're in the thick of this series where, uh, uh, this season where people who don't typically move toward church and faith and the spiritual life and Jesus, they move toward him, and we have this unique opportunity to facilitate encounter because all they got to do is get in his presence, and that's how it starts. Now, there's more to it. That's not how it ends. But I know if they can just get in the building 
if they can just get in his presence, he can begin to straighten things out for them because when she brings the matter to Jesus, Jesus brings counsel. Not just, one, not just counsel, but wonderful counsel. Martha's about to find out that she's way off. She's super confident, but she's about to find out that she's way off. I saw this meme this, this week. Will you put that up? That uh, picture. So this is a picture of Kermit the Frog looking really like bewildered. And the text says, when you're taking a test and everyone starts using a ruler, but you thought the answer was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> They're taking a math test. You thought it was a history test. And you're all of a sudden faced with the reality that something is very, <laughs> very, very off. And this is what happens often when we come to Jesus. Jesus' wise counsel is about to be experienced by her, and if she lets it, it could change her life. And because we're reading this, we can hear that wise counsel, apply it to our lives, and if we're faithful and attentive, actively listening, it can change our life as well. Because a counselor brings specific life change information to help you get what? To get unstuck. She's clearly stuck. Jesus is in her house. And if she's tripping when Jesus is in her house, there's no hope for her when he leaves. She's stuck. She needs help. She needs counsel, and Jesus delivers it. And Jesus is my hero because I just love how smooth he is. I love how quickly he gets the point. This wasn't long and drawn out. She, she spoke two sentences of her concern to him. And he straightened it out in about two sentences. He didn't say, now, Martha, let's lay down on this couch here. Now, take me back to your childhood. Like, where did this begin with you, and take your time. This wasn't long and drawn out. He's a wonderful counselor. I love that about Jesus. Some lawyers, like, you need about 10K just to sit down with them. They say, like, we're not going to put you on a payment plan. We're not going to stretch this out. They are so confident that if they hear a few sentences of their issue, they can think they said, listen, 10K and we can straighten it out. I was listening to an interview by Master P the other day, and he said that when in, the, in the 90s when he was trying to figure out how to do something that none of the other record labels could do in terms of owning their merchandise and having the, the distributing deals, he wanted an audience with Michael Jackson's attorney because Michael Jackson had the kind of deal that he wanted. And he said Michael Jackson's attorney said, we can sit down, but I need 25K. Master P said, 25K just for a sit down. He said, either you want it or not, man. You know what Master P did? He got that 25K together and it changed his life. Why was this guy so certain? He knew that he had the goods. Wise people in different realms of life, they aren't surprised by the issues you bring to them. One of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, says that wise people, they are just less surprised by life. Because <laughs> they've been there. They've done that. And I love being in the company of somebody wise, no matter what realm of life or business or industry, because they just know. They're not surprised by your issue or your dysfunction. 
They are reasonably sure that they can help you get unstuck. You ever had an audience with some of these people? You're three sentences into describing for them your issue and they stop you. Okay, okay. It's not that they're bored or disinterested or that they're being impatient with you. They are wise and they've heard enough already to give you their expert counsel. It's remarkable. I've experienced this as a church planner, as a father, as a husband. I got my people that I call, and sometimes I don't get through my whole story before they say, okay, okay, okay. Here's what you do. This is Martha, and this is Jesus. She's bothered. She's concerned. She brings it to Jesus. Verse 41 tells us what the master replies. He said, the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. Over all these details, there is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it won't be taken from her. Dear Martha, you're worried, you're upset. There's one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. Now listen, let's pay attention, because tone matters, right? These are Jesus' friends. They love him. He loves them. And so I love the way he addresses her. And we've been paying attention over these weeks how Jesus addresses the subject of, of his communication. He says, dear, dear Martha. You hear the tenderness in that? You have the concern and care in that. Dear Martha, I've heard you, dear. I've listened. And here's what I've concluded. You are worried and upset about all of these details. And again, when I get to that sentence, I feel like the Lord turns all the lights out in the room and he puts a spotlight on me yet again because I'm a, I'm a details guy. And I noticed the beautiful kids were singing up here. I noticed that they weren't quite center on this tape that I put down. (laughs) I just heard the Lord speak to me. Gino. (laughs) Like the tape is blue. It's blue. I put it blue so they can... You're worried about all the details. And he said something else to me, not in an audible voice, but in my, he said, there's time for the details. Like, I made you a details guy. Like, somebody got to care about the details. Somebody got to put the tape on the floor. Other than half the kids were hanging off the stage. <laughs> he said, I made you a details person. That's cool and everything but you're worried about the details in a moment where you shouldn't be worried about the details. You're preoccupied with the small little things that you have come to know those details matter. The cumulative effect of getting a bunch of little things right is that the whole thing goes well. Like I put that in you, I made you with that at the forefront of your mind, but in this particular moment, son, you are missing the forest for the trees. 
worried and upset about the details. And he presses in and says, there is one thing, uh, there is one thing to be concerned about in this moment. And Mary has found it. Not you. Don't you love this about Jesus? Maybe you don't. That he, he, he cuts to the quick of the matter. He doesn't have to do this whole, you know, compliment sandwich before he tells you the thing that he needs to tell you. Okay, Martha, the house smells great. Love what you've done there. Okay? You've done this bad thing, and then I'm going to sandwich it with something good. Like, he doesn't, like, the Messiah doesn't need to do that. Word made flesh doesn't need to do that. Because he knows if he says it right, if he packages it well, that she will receive it. And he points to Mary, since you asked, Martha, since you brought me into this. I wasn't going to say anything, but since you brought me into it, Mary has found it. And where has she located the most important thing? At my feet. Her instinct, Mary's instincts were right because when I popped in on her, she shot to my feet. Her response was to draw near to abide. Jesus don't come by here often. And so when he's here, I'm not going to find myself in the kitchen. I'm going to find myself at his feet. Her response wasn't, watch this. I'm going to kill him with this mac and cheese. He's going to be talking about this everywhere he goes. Her response wasn't, wait till he sees this charcuterie board. This is going to be the talk of the town. She's probably sweeping when Jesus came. And when she saw him, she said, hey, this is the time for attentiveness. At his feet, I go. Her instinct was, let me get somewhere and sit down. Let me still myself. Let me still my own voice. And the only way I'll raise my voice is to be an active, attentive listener, loud listener, just so Jesus know that I'm tracking with him. I'm going to posture myself to receive from Jesus. Jesus points to her as the one who's found what is most important. What steadying words? If you're a fellow like me, who can miss the forest for the trees? What convicting, steadying words if you're somebody who tries to please the Lord with activity and service and performance. How might Jesus be like letting us off the hook? Not giving us permission to be inactive and lazy and all the work to fall to somebody else, but permission to say, at these precious integral moments, you need to be at my feet and not in the broom closet or in the pantry or scrubbing a toilet. In this particular moment, you need to be at my feet feet. There's a fourth thing that I see in this text that doesn't immediately leap leap out. It's not explicit here, but it's implied. It's something I see when I look at this text, and that is a picture of the gospel. There's a picture of the gospel here, if you have eyes to see it. It's the good news. Simply, gospel means good news. The good news about Jesus Christ, the reason for this season, what we celebrate, While we're happy, the king came and brought his kingdom with him. The good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. While we were still a mess, 
still broken, on a hopeless road to nowhere with our salvation and future up to us, Jesus came at just the right time and he died for us. And in dying for us, he takes on his back the price of sin, giving us salvation, freedom, hope for our future. This is the gospel, right? And so I believe that this text, if you see it that way, can indirectly highlight what is so good about the gospel. What's so good about the gospel is that the gospel is an anti-striving proposition. It's an anti-striving reality, and it's not anti-effort. Don't mishear me, because it takes considerable effort to have a healthy spirituality, a considerable effort to enjoy life with Jesus. And some of you, you've been saved more than two weeks. You know it takes considerable effort. So the gospel isn't anti-effort. It certainly isn't anti-action because faith doesn't exist without the requisite works. But the gospel is an anti-striving. It's against striving because the hardest work and the heaviest lifting has already been done by the person and work of Jesus. I say that again, it's anti-striving because the heaviest lifting and the hardest work has already been done at the cross. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, but that child, that son will grow up and they will hang him mercilessly on a tree. And he's done that because of what John says in verse 316. That God loved the world so much that he sent his son, not just to hang out, pal around with us, but so through his death, his suffering, his burial, his resurrection, that we might receive eternal life. That's why the son was given. That's why the child was born. And if you don't get this, that the gospel is an anti-striving reality, you will experience a very complicated life with Jesus. A very complicated life in Jesus. I, I, I'm not saying you won't squeeze into heaven. I'm just saying you won't live the abundant life. I'm saying it's going to get complicated for you because you still think you've got to earn it. It's going to get costly in the wrong kind of way because you still think you've got to pay for something that's already been paid for. If you don't embrace the gospel as an anti-striving and a pro-abiding reality, life with Jesus gets real hard harder than it has to be, gets more expensive than it has to be, and more complicated than it has to be. You don't enjoy it. There's no joy in your salvation. One of my favorite preachers gave a great illustration of the gospel. He put it this way. Imagine there's two teams that make the Super Bowl one year. Team one, 16 and one in the regular season, uh, and defeated and undefeated in this present year, right? Swept 
through the regular season, swept through the playoffs last year, and they had a decisive victory in last year's Super Bowl, and they've done essentially the same thing. They're the greatest team in the NFL in this particular year. The other team lost every game last season. <laughs> this is hitting a little close to home. And was the laughingstock of the entire league. But in the complete reversal of fortune, this year, they are having an amazing season. They are surprising even themselves. They win 15 of their seven games. They stumble through these wins in the playoffs, and they make it, surprisingly, to uh, the Super Bowl. Now, these are two teams, two very different stories. Which team, this preacher asked, is going to have the better Super Bowl experience? You probably got your opinion, but he says the underdogs will. The underdogs are going to have the best experience. They're going to enjoy it more because they know they've won before they play one down of football in the big game. They're legends already. Their hometown is abuzz with pride and excitement. Social media is lit up. As people talk with pride about, their, pride about their team, their merchandise is flying off the stores. The manufacturers can scarcely keep up. Nobody who knows and cares about sports can mention this year without their names coming up, win or lose. There's this beautiful Cinderella story in the media. The whole country is talking about them. And even the third string kicker will never buy his own beer in any bar in America because regardless of how they do in that game, they're legends already. The other team, last year's champs, they've got everything to lose. If they win, they were supposed to win. <laughs> if they lose, they're bums and they can't show their faces around town. They're not relaxed entering the big game. They can't let their hair down and enjoy the moment. They can't be loose and enjoy it. They're uptight because they've got everything to lose. The stakes are unbelievably high. You see what I'm saying here? And those of us who are naturally Marthas, present company included, strivers, doers, those who are wired to do and perform and overperform rather than faithfully abiding, we've got so much to lose. Chief among them, our reputation. We can be religious. And religion simply caring more about what matters to people than you care about what matters to God. With the best of intentions and the purest of motives, we strivers, we doers struggle to see the gospel in this way. Jesus in this way, ourselves in this way, and the counselor's best advice to us in a word, chill. It's chill. In a different word, abide. Rest. Not swinging in a hammock rest, but that active abiding rest. The counselor, the wonderful counselor, all-knowing, all-wise, incorruptibly good, super concerned about his glory, but also our human flourishing. He says to us, to help us, relax. 
because the gospel is a no-striving proposition. Now listen, we are who we are. We've come to think how we think because of how we are wired and how we've been socialized. That's the reality. And some of us, as we take inventory here and as we wrestle through how we need to get to the place of abiding rather than performing, we have to reckon with who we are, who we've become, and how we've become it. And when I comb through how I came to be a person who is rather than enjoying the kids singing, I'm just looking at this blue tape. Just scooch over just a little bit. How did it come to be that way? I think about my upbringing. I think about my socialization. I think about where I'm situated as a chocolate preacher in a white movement. And you don't have to be black for long before some well-meaning black person drapes an arm around your shoulder and says, listen, son, if you're going to go far in this world, you've got to be twice as good as them. If you're going to stand out in this world, you're going to be success. The, the deck's stacked against you. You've got to be twice as good. You've got to be early. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And they're loading you up with what they believe is equipment to help you. But in some ways, you, you, you internalize some of these things and you, and you scrape and drag those things into the spiritual life. Into life with Jesus. And some of you, if I were to pass the microphone, you would tell a story of how you picked this up here and picked that up there and came to see yourself this way and came to see the world this way and you've, and you've drug all those things into life with Jesus and you're, you're running around trying to earn something, running around trying to be something, running around trying to be seen or, or experienced in a certain way and you've neglected the lover of your soul his opinion of you, his prescription about how you're supposed to show up in the world. And when you, were, when you describe your Christian life, you're not describing joy in your salvation, a vibrant spirituality. You are, you're tired. You're worn out. You're burnt out on what? Religion and Christian service and trying to look the part. But what does Jesus say to people who are tired and burnt out and worn out on religion? What does he say? Anybody know? Come to me. That's his counsel. He's saying this in an indirect way to Mary. I'm sorry, Martha, come to me. You see where Mary's sitting? Come bring your hips right next to her. <laughs> put a pizza in the oven. If you've got a fetus, put a pizza in the oven, but get down here at the feet, right? Come to me. My worship team, you guys can make your way back as I land the plane here. Now, there's a number of Marys in the house. You've already figured this out. You're being helped along in your spiritual life by your natural wiring to put first things first and not to be overly distracted by the details. You're okay. This was just affirmation for you. But for the Marthas in the room, the wonderful counselor is in your presence He's pressing back against your instincts to perform, to do, to run yourself ragged with things that might not be important, but might be important, but they're certainly not the most, they're not the most important. And you haven't come to a healthy understanding that when you can abide properly 
and get what you need from Jesus, the wonderful counselor, it's going to inform and impact how you show up in all the other realms of your life. And how often are we neglecting time with Jesus because of our work or because of our family or because of our Christian service? In my, in my particular case, my professional Christian service. Somebody pays me money to do this. And in all those realms of life, when I haven't sufficiently abided, all those other realms of life, they don't work quite like they should. My relationships don't quite hit right. My vocational life don't quite satisfy right, right? All these different pockets of life, they just don't feel right. And previously you thought, you know what I need to do? I need to spend more time there. I need to, I need to, I need to dig in here. And the wonderful counselor says to you today, why don't you come talk to me about it? Why don't you spend a little time at my feet? Because life with me is a no-striving reality. All this from the wonderful counselor, that gift that keeps giving. And so who among us today needs to come to Jesus' feet? Who among us is a natural striver, a natural doer to our own spiritual, relational, emotional detriment? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and who carry heavy burdens, and I will what? Give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. There's still work to do. There's still some burden, some effort. But my burden, Jesus says, is light in comparison because I'm going to carry it with you. I'm going to go with you. And he's the strong ox that's yoked to us to do the work that he's put us here to do. Jesus says, come to me. Nothing deeper than that, nothing more profound. Jesus says, come. And so as we worship the Lord with a final song, what you need to wrestle with is where you sit with us. What's your posture before the Lord? What is the immediate step that you need to take in order to find yourself at his feet and not running around focused on the lesser things? Would you stand with me if you can? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we bless your name. You've called us to sit at your feet, to abide. And it doesn't make natural sense that resting will help me accomplish all these things that I need to accomplish. Does it make natural sense that if I give you this time, you'll help me straighten out all this stuff that seems insurmountable? So Lord, I pray that you would release the gift of faith in this place today, that we might trust you just enough to bring the matter to you, to abide, to rest, to trust you. May we sit at your feet. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.